Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, July 13th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, July 17th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with all three of my co-hosts, two of my co-hosts, <laughs> Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? The gang's all back together again. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, but this week we made it work. I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there as always. Mm-hmm. All yeah. right. How's Spain, Emily? It's hot. Um, I am physically and emotionally drained, but uh, I went to the beach, yes, on Sunday, and it was it was the first time I'd gone where, like, the water had warmed up enough, and it was so hot that it was, like, the most refreshing. It wasn't like, oh, like, you know, when you jump into cold water and you're like, it's yeah. a little not great. Like, it was just, like, refreshing start to finish so that was lovely all right well i'm hanging in here uh recently relocated to la so just doing this life thing and um happy to be still recording at radio free brooklyn all right so today's episode on the docket for local news we'll be discussing the new york city bodega worker who's facing murder charges after fatally stabbing a man who attacked him Our national news story is about the sexual abuse issues that have been happening with the JROTC programs in America. For world news, we'll be discussing a British resident who was stranded in Jamaica with her baby. And finally, our good news story will be about the reinstatement of endangered species protections. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Um, The information in the story was drawn for an article on CNN.com. And the author of the article is Sonia Mogi. A growing chorus of voices is urging Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg to drop a murder charge against a bodega clerk who fatally stabbed a man who had gone behind the counter and pushed him. The bodega clerk, Jose Alba, 61, was working at the Blue Moon Convenience Store in Upper Manhattan on the night of July 1st when he got into a deadly altercation with Austin Simon, according to a copy of Alba's criminal report. Alba was also allegedly stabbed by Simon's girlfriend during the incident, the complainant states. Simon's girlfriend, who was not named in the complaint, had left the store after her payment was declined while attempting to buy a snack for her daughter, and she alleged in the complainant that Alba had grabbed her daughter's hand to retrieve the snack. She later returned to the store with Simon. The New York Post obtained surveillance video of the incident and reported that the woman is heard saying, my in is going to come down here and F you up shortly after before Simon came to the store. According to the complainant, surveillance video showed Simon carrying a white towel in one hand entering the area behind the counter where Abba sat and then pushed him. Mr. Simon then put the towel in his pocket and attempted to steer the defendant out of the area behind the counter, but the defendant picked up a kitchen knife that was stashed behind the counter and stabbed Mr. Simon in the neck and chest at least five times. He wanted me to come apologize to the girl, Alba told the investigator, according to the complainant. I took the knife we used to open boxes and I stabbed him. The complainant states that Simon's girlfriend attempted to pull Alba away from Simon, holding his right arm. But the clerk continued to stab Simon. Simon's girlfriend then took the knife from her purse and stabbed Alba, the complainant states. She is not currently facing charges, according to a spokesperson for the prosecutor's office. Simon died later that evening of stab wounds in his neck and torso. Alba was arrested by police on July 2nd and charged with one count of second-degree murder. 
He did not. He did not enter a plea, according to Emily Whitfield, a spokesperson for his attorney. Prosecutors moved to reduce Alva's bail after the clerk was held in Rikers Island for several days, saying at a hearing that they have been in conversations with defense counsel about coming up with a bail package that balances the facts of the case. He was released on a $50,000 bond partially secured by the owners of the bodega where Alva worked. He is due back to court on July 20th. Attorneys say the clerk was acting in self-defense. Alice Fontier, Managing Director of Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem, which offers legal services to, commu to the community, is representing Alba, said in a statement to CNN that Alba was defending himself during the incident. The video in this case speaks for itself. Mr. Alba was simply doing his job when he was aggressively cornered by a much younger and bigger man, Frontier said in the statement. Alba has worked at the bodega since immigrating to New York City 35 years ago from the Dominican Republic in search for a better life, Frontier said, adding he has worked at the bodega where the incident took place for three years. He worked hard to earn his citizenship at 18 years old and has been a constant source of support for his children and his grandchildren. Others have also come to Alba's defense. Jose Alba has our full support, said Fernando Mateo, speaking on behalf of United Bodegas of America. Our city is in crisis, and at this point, we are just fed up with people robbing, looting, attacking, assaulting, killing our small business owners. Mateo said current New York laws involving use of deadly force during self-defense need to change. On Tuesday, he and other bodega advocates met with D.A. Bragg to urge him to drop Alba's murder charge. Mateo said afterward he felt pleased on how the meeting went. We're very hopeful that Jose Alba's case will be dismissed and he will be dropped by the district attorney. Doug Cohen, spokesperson for the district attorney, issued a statement after the meeting. We welcome the opportunity to discuss how we can work together to promote safety on our streets and in our workplaces and look forward to continuing these conversations, he said. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has voiced support for Alba, too, saying that after he saw surveillance video in the incident, he felt that Alba was being attacked and we need to factor that in when we make these decisions in a July 8th radio interview. Adams said that while the NYPD made the arrest, it is ultimately up to the DA to decide whether to go forward with charges. DAs have a non-mandate. No one can mandate how they determine to prosecute a case, and my role is never to interfere with the police. I've never called the police since to tell, to tell police to make an arrest or not to make an arrest. I don't do that. It's independent. The DAs are independent. My role is a very clear one. Criminal defense attorney Jeffrey Lichman told CNN that under New York state law, a person can only use deadly force to defend themselves if they have reasonably believed the person they're defending themselves from is about to use deadly force. The law also states that a person using deadly force to defend themselves has a duty to retreat from a threat. The reason they arrested him was because their position was that the defendant was not facing deadly force, Lichman said. While Lichman understands why Alba was charged under New York state law, he believes no reasonable juror would convict Alba in the case. So I'll stop right there. Um, this is an interesting topic, I thought, just because, you know, uh, we haven't really talked about the issue too much of self-defense on the show. And the video is very clear, um, you know, just trigger warning if you do watch it, it's disturbing, of course. Um, but I can honestly say if my life was being threatened, I would do everything to save it. So this is a very um, 
contentious topic. Obviously, there's been a lot of crime in New York City, much more um, in recent years, and uh, things happening in bodegas and small stores. Um, this has been on the increase. What do you guys think? I also saw the video and because when you mentioned them, like, yeah, I do. I didn't remember the names, but I did watch the video. And I don't my my feeling is that if you approach someone with the intent that you're going to threaten, intimidate, hurt them, you need to be ready to meet God because like you don't have any you don't know what they might do to you. But I think from watching the video, it was they assumed they miscalculated because it was an older guy. They thought like, oh, like, yeah, you can jump behind the counter. And he was really like, I thought he might was going to do something. And the man couldn't get away. And I'm not saying that he had, like, I do think that he went too far as far as, like, how much he's standing. But in the heat of the moment, I'm like, it is what it is, man. It's unfortunate. It didn't have to escalate like this. I will say, if it's true that Alba snatched the snack from the child's hand, that was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And probably escalated the whole thing to, like, now you're doing that to a child. But you can't be jumping bad at people and think they're just going to cower and be like, Oh, you don't know what people have on them, what they may have been through. So if you get out of line that way, that's the chance that you take. It's just, it's unfortunate. It ended like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't seen the video. I didn't, I didn't know about this. Um, very intense, very scary. I, I, I pretty much agree with what Jasmine said. I think that, Um, I'm a big fan of de-escalation, but also like as a woman, I am not going, I am always going to assume that if I feel threatened, like it's like fight or flight, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm like, and I know that this is not like a man and a woman situation, but it's still like when there's that sense of danger, you like, and it seems like it's pretty clear that there was threats happening and, Mm -hmm. um, and there's no way of knowing how it could have escalated for the bodega um, manager, the cashier, you know, so he had to make a choice to protect himself. Uh, and again, like, yeah, maybe it, it got, he got carried away, but um, yeah, it is unfortunate, um, you know, whenever someone loses their life, but um, you know, more than unfortunate, but it, it's still, yeah. Like I, if I, if I can't escape, I'm going to, defend myself you know I'm not going to ask like oh are you like are you serious about your threats right like I'm not going to take the time to do that and you don't have the luxury because there's also like a dynamic at play like you're talking like as a woman if you have a much bigger person yep the thing you have to do has to be proportionate to like their ability to hurt you Mm -hmm. it's not like they could have he could have won like a regular fist fight with this man and that's why the girlfriend said that she thought and mind you from what i saw his girlfriend was white talking about my n-word is gonna come back here and i'm like "Uh uh-uh see Mm -hmm. what was that about yeah. You thought that was his job to be like, oh, like he's going to scare you and I'm going to order him to do this to you. Like it was just all kinds of messed up. Yeah, there's a lot and- of dynamics going on there. Yeah, like, what do you think an old man is going to do in the middle of the night by himself? Just nice. let it happen. Like just lay down and be like, okay, like what? Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you if know, he. Bodegas mm-hmm. probably get robbed all the time. Yep. You know I was just going to say that. Yeah. They sure do. 
This guy's been in the job for 35 years, you said. So he's seen he's seen the city change a million times over. And um, he's probably, yeah, he's probably seen a lot of dangerous situations if he works night shifts there. And came from the DR, you know, mm-hmm. like he's an immigrant. I'm sure he, he saw some shit back home. Right. You got to be ready to do what you have to do to defend yourself and be aware at all times these days because mm-hmm. people are on edge. Mm-hmm. everybody's more on edge like it's yep. nothing to play with thinking you can just jump at somebody like that and it's just gonna go the way you think it's gonna go like she put a battery in his back yep. and unfortunately that man instead of telling her to calm down mm-hmm. or instead of him being like oh you know, he with a snack like he wanted to puff up his chest and be like oh i'm gonna which was foolish because he could have went to jail for that alone yeah that's what I was thinking like the fact Wait. that she hasn't been charged with anything I think that's Didn't gonna she change the man too yes yeah, she stabbed, she stabbed him, him too she had a knife in her purse she, she stabbed, stabbed the man yeah oh yeah she stabbed him too so the fact that she hasn't been charged you know I think there's more to happen to this case it did oh, just, wow um you know on July 2nd and he goes back to court on the 20th but according to this article which was published uh, updated today she has not been charged with anything um, which I think you know, is, is hmm. awkward, you know. But two men of color, one facing going to jail for self-defense, the other one dead. Mm-hmm. And she's just going about, like, come on now. Yeah. Over a snack, and it had to blow up to all of this. Like, this mm-hmm. did not have to get to this point at all. Exactly. exactly. From snatching it from the child, that was unnecessary. Sicking your Black boyfriend on this guy because you think that's going to do something, that was unnecessary. An accomplice, accomplice to assault or, you know, something like that. Because she, yeah. she, she helped you out. Said, so. Yeah, you said, you're, I'm going to send my man to come F you up. What you think the man thought that meant? Exactly. He probably was on defense from the moment she walked out the store, you know? So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens here um, and how these laws, if, you know, something does happen, may change or just happen to uh, come into the forefront. Because I noticed this, you know, the I didn't even know there was like a unionized bodega worker organization, but it sounds as though they're very serious about protecting their own. And this is a problem that, you know, we have never really talked about. You don't really hear about them coming together as a collective. Um, in regards to how their business is managed or protected. So uh, just an interesting thing, you know, bodegas are everywhere in New York City, and I'm sure that anyone who works in them is probably really affected by how this case will go. Yeah, and like Emily mentioned about women using self-defense, the way these laws are are so backwards. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's like you get punished for defending yourself more often than the other person. It's like the only good victim is a dead one. Yeah, unless you're in Florida. But even then, it's like if you're white. That black lady got sent away because she shot a warning shot and the man was trying to kill her. It's really ass backwards, you know. It's like you're only in the right if you end up being a murder victim. Mm -hmm. But if you actually fight it off, then, you know, you're going to get sent up. It's just Mm -hmm. backwards. It is. It really is. So, uh, interesting. We'll be on the lookout for the results of what happens in this trial. So we're going to go ahead and hop into our first music break of the day. This track is called The Devil is Human, and it's by an artist named Aurora. We'll be back. Father, don't blame us for trying to leave. 
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Next up, we have Emily with our national news story. All righty. Um, so I do want to give a big, a big old trigger warning here. There is a lot of pretty explicit sexual abuse descriptions in here. So if that is not your thing, I suggest that you uh, fast forward to the next segment. Um, so this story comes from a July 9th New York Times story by Mike Baker, Nicholas uh, Bogle Burroughs, and Alana Marcus, and it's titled, I Felt Trapped, Sexual Abuse of Teens in the Military's JROTC Program. 
Former students say military veterans who led JROTC classes in the U.S. and U.S. high schools fashioned themselves as mentors, then used their power to manipulate and abuse. The article explains, quote, with the rifle skills she honed in the Mississippi backwoods, Victoria Bauer had a path to escape the trap of drugs and dead-end jobs she saw most everywhere around her. Her future was in the Marines, she decided, and she had an idea about how to get there. Across the way from her freshman algebra class, Ms. Bauer approached Steve Harden, the retired Navy intelligence officer who guided the high school's junior reserve officers training corps, a leadership program sponsored by the U.S. military at high schools across the country. He welcomed her into the fold, she said, and seemed interested in how her family, which traced its roots back to the Four Winds Cherokee of Louisiana, had been displaced by Hurricane Katrina. Soon, her 45-year-old JROTC instructor was messaging her on Snapchat late into the night, telling her that it would drive the guys crazy if she wore a small bikini during the trip to their next out-of-state shooting competition. Then one night in 2015, as he drove her home from rifle practice, she told investigators, Mr. Hardin pushed his hand into her pants and penetrated her with his fingers. The start of what she said was months of sexual assaults. Ms. Bauer, who was 15 at the time, feared that resisting him would jeopardize her shot at advancement through the JROTC ranks or as a, mili- or a military career. Quote, for more than a century, the JROTC program has sought to instill U.S. military values in American teenagers, with classes in thousands of public high schools that provide training in marksmanship, life skills, hierarchical discipline, and military history. School officials endorse the classes, typically offered as electives during the regular school day, as a way to galvanize students who are struggling with direction and motivation. But a New York Times investigation, which included an examination of thousands of court documents, investigative files, and other records obtained through more than 150 public disclosure requests, has found that the program has repeatedly become a place where where retired military officers prey on their teenage students. In the past five years, the Times found at least 33 JROTC instructors have been criminally charged with sexual misconduct involving students, far higher than the rate of civilian high school teachers in jurisdictions examined by the Times. Many others have been accused of misconduct but never charged. The senior military veterans who make up the JROTC ranks are certified by the military but deploy to high school classrooms with little oversight and scant training for the actual work of being a teacher. Many states do not require JROTC instructors to have a college degree or a teaching certificate. Schools are expected to monitor the instructors and investigate complaints, but they have struggled to adequately oversee a program that largely operates on the fringes of their campuses. Victims have reported sexual assaults in classrooms and supply closets during field trips or on late night rides home, sometimes committed after instructors plied students with alcohol or drugs. One former student said her instructor told her that sexual submission was expected of women in the military. A recent cadet in Tennessee said her JROTC instructor warned that he had had the skills to kill her without a trace if she told anyone about their sexual encounters. In Missouri, a student said she was forced to kneel at her instructor's bedside blindfolded with a gun to her head. The Times interviewed 13 victims, many of whom had strikingly similar stories. They were teenagers who came from disadvantaged backgrounds or who otherwise saw the military as a pathway to a promising future, then found that the instructors who fashioned themselves as mentors exploited their positions to manipulate and abuse. 
JROTC leaders declined requests for interviews, but pointed to research indicating that the program had a positive effect on school attendance and graduation rates. The U.S. US Army Cadet Command, which sponsors the largest JROTC program, said in a statement that its instructors went through a strenuous vetting process and that any allegations of misconduct were investigated, typically by the school school districts that hired the JROTC instructors as civilian employees. Founded during World War I, the JROTC program has grown to serve a half million teenagers each year in classes aimed at promoting civic responsibility, leadership, and skills such as handling a weapon. Its instructors are retired officers or non-commissioned officers, often holding medals from decades of military service. For the military, which has struggled to meet its recruiting goals in an all-volunteer army, JROTC has also seen has also been seen as a potentially important recruiting tool. Students from high schools with JROTC programs are more than twice as likely to enlist after graduation, according to the Army Cadet Command. The program targets schools with high populations of low-income students. Across the country, majority-minority schools are nearly three times as likely as majority white schools to have a JROTC program, according to a Times analysis. The nature of the program offers instructors an unusual level of access to the children they mentor, according to interviews with former students and instructors. It often operates with its own classrooms and facilities, and students frequently are asked to participate in after-school weekend and out-of-state activities, where instructors sometimes violate district rules by communicating with students on personal cell phones or driving them in their own vehicles. The weak oversight has allowed some instructors to engage in repeated misconduct, At least seven of those who have been criminally charged had already been flagged for previous allegations of misconduct, but were allowed to stay on the job. Quote, there's so much faith and confidence and trust that goes into these instructor positions, said Joe Williams, a former Marine gunnery sergeant who worked as a JROTC instructor in Mississippi and Kansas for six years, and who was the first to raise concerns about Mr. Hardin with school administrators. We've got these individuals who use that trust as a cloak. Quote, in the case of Ms. Bauer in Mississippi, other concerns about Mr. Hardin's conduct had emerged months before she came forward. Mr. Williams, the JROTC instructor who reported him, recalled in an interview that Mr. Hardin had made a lewd comment to him about a student in the bikini. Then when some students came to him with a report that they had seen several concerning text messages that Mr. Hardin had sent to a female student, Mr. Williams said he brought the issue to school administrators but he said he faced intense blowback. One of the longtime leaders in the school's JROTC program, he recalled, accused him of failing to follow the chain of command by going to administrators instead of trying to resolve the complaints with Mr. Hardin directly. School officials did not respond to requests to to discuss the case, but court records show that a police investigation ensued. Ms. Bauer initially defended him, saying in a recent interview that she did not disclose her encounters with Mr. Hardin at the time because she feared she would be ostracized. Mr. Hardin was not charged at the time and wound up applying for a new role at a JROTC program two hours away from Picayune. He got the job. Quote, JROTC classes are built around military-style discipline, typically starting with the Pledge of Allegiance. Students learn public speaking, a U.S. military view of world history, and how to march in formation. On designated days, cadets dress in service uniforms, and when visitors come to class, the students stand at attention. Uh, The military provides instructors with training in ethics and the JROTC curriculum, then certifies them to be hired by school districts. 
Part of their pay is reimbursed by the military, which conducts annual reviews of school JROTC programs, usually looking at such things as the effectiveness of programs and the condition of facilities. Uh, James Boyer, a retired captain who led the JROTC program at a high school north of Houston for nearly two decades, said many instructors became father figures for students, helping them apply for scholarships and get jobs or pushing them to improve their grades. He recalled speaking to car dealerships to help one of his students get a job after she showed him an interest in cars. Sometimes he said a student who had a chaotic, a chaotic home life would do homework for another class in his office. Um, let's see. For a position, oh, sorry, quote, quote, for a position that provides them an unusual level of access to students, JROTC instructors have minimal training obligations. Mr. Williams described going through a two-week military training course in California to become a qualified instructor, with much of the time focused on the administrative functions of the job, such as how to balance the books and order supplies, and only a brief discussion of of teacher-student boundaries. I still remember what the instructor said. He's like, you can't fall in love with a 15-year-old, Mr. Williams said. I'm going to leave it with this final part. Quote, with at least 33 instructors charged with teachers, uh, student sexual crimes in the past five years, the JROTC program has recorded one arrest for every 232 instructor positions. There is no national tracking system for educator abuse, but the Times reviewed arrest information for high school teachers released by three of the nation's largest school districts, Miami-Dade County, Florida, Hillsborough County, Florida, and Los Angeles, along with five years of disciplinary records in Pennsylvania, which proactively monitors for teacher arrests. Compared with each of those jurisdictions, the JROTC program recorded teacher-student sexual misconduct charges much more often, 68% higher than the next highest case rate. There's a lot more details to the story, so um, you can check that out on the New York Times uh, on the New York Times website really intense, really gross. Um, I'm not like super surprised, you know, where if they're, you know, the type of environment this is, it's like the Boy Scouts on speed where it just creates really that environment just ripe for abuse. It's terrible. I have had conversations about this um, previously because I've known people who have uh, graduated from ROTC programs and in the past, you know, we don't really get to hear much about what's happening in the army, in the military, and armed forces for situations like this too much. It's, if it's swept under the rug there, imagine how much is swept under the rug for a high school program. Um, and a lot of times I feel like it's, you know, uh, pushed back because they are youth. And, you know, it's always like a, I don't know, it just always seemed like a situation where nobody hears them fully. And since they're training, trying to get good marks, trying to get scholarships, trying to get recognition to move on, um, a lot of this stuff just goes unnoticed, unspoken about. And people suffer their whole lives because of stuff like this. Yeah, when um, I know that the JROTC is focused on people who are minors, um, but listening to this, it reminded me of that. There's a documentary by Kirby Dick called The Invisible War. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's on HBO Max streaming. It's also on Amazon Prime. But it's about the pervasiveness of sexual assault and abuse within the U.S. Armed Forces. Uh, There's also been 
um, unfortunately, a lot of cases of women in particular just kind of going missing from some of these military bases, like in Fort Hood and stuff like that. So it really seems like this is a problem, like from these training programs, like getting kids almost acclimated to that type of treatment being normalized. And, you know, if this is happening within the ranks of these armed forces, imagine what it's like if these people are then going on to, you know, foreign countries as an invading like force and what they could be doing, what they definitely are doing to people that live in the country. If they're doing this to their fellow officers or to children that are somewhat in their care, it's really, it's incredibly disturbing and you know, particularly with all of this quote unquote groomer panic that comes out of like trying to demonize queer people. It's like a lot of these people pushing that narrative need to look in a mirror at the types of things that they allow to go on within some of these organizations because it's, it's unacceptable. Yeah. And, you know, just one thing I think that really stood out to me in in the story was that one former student said that her instructor told her that sexual submission was expected of women in the military. Like it's so pervasive and Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like it's it's yep. and it's like of you know, it's not only is it happening, it's happening to a degree that it's at least openly, you know, whatever mentality exists there, it's just like accepted to a certain degree and then used to further abuse um, on others. Yeah. They're they're not even subject to the same laws that you and I are subject to. Mm -hmm. It's like they go into, they have whatever their military court is and a lot of that stuff, like Reese said, gets brushed right on under the rug Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's forgotten about, but sexual violence is 100% a part of war there's all these stories coming out of what's happening in Ukraine right now it happens whenever you have an armed conflict so as awful as it is as what he said he didn't lie it's really it's a part of the culture it's so normalized it's really gross I I feel terrible for these children because you know what an age to have something like that happen to you from a person you think you can trust or people that, you know, in the community might respect them or whatever, like who can you go to? Very important story. Thank you so much, Emily, for bringing this one to the table. So we're gonna go ahead and take another music break before hopping into our world news story. The next track is called Red Pill and it's by Eastworth. We'll be right back.
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have Jasmine bring our world news story. Okay, so this um, information was in a recent Guardian article. Um, It is about a British resident who was stranded in Jamaica after giving birth. Um, The person who wrote the article is Diane Taylor, and it came out on July the 11th. A British resident who was stranded in Jamaica with her baby has been told by the home office the child can't come to the UK because he has an established life on the Caribbean island. Tiffany Ellis, age 28, has indefinite leave to remain in the UK, where she has lived since the age of eight. She gave birth to Zion Ellis on April 30th last year in Jamaica and has been trying to return to the UK ever since. In a letter of refusal of the baby's visa application, home office officials say the decision is justified by the need to maintain an effective immigration and border control and will not have unjustifiably harsh consequences. They add that the baby's life can continue as it is now in Jamaica with financial support from his mother in the UK. The home office refused Zian's visa application on December 22nd when he was almost eight months old. Tiffany's husband, Zarin Ellis, age 38, and the couple's older daughter, Zianna Ellis, five, are at a family's home in London, desperate to be reunited with Tiffany and Zian. Tiffany and Zarin traveled from their home in London to Jamaica in January 2020 to get married, accompanied by Zianna, their daughter. While the couple were waiting for the paperwork to come through for their wedding, COVID broke out and they had to stay in Jamaica as many parts of the world were locked down. They were finally able to get married on the island in August 2020. In September 2020, Tiffany became pregnant and was afflicted with constant vomiting, hyperemesis gravidarum, so severe that she was unable to leave the house. She hoped the condition would subside after the first trimester and booked a flight back to the UK for January 2021, but her condition worsened and she had to remain in Jamaica until after she gave birth. Last December, Zarin and Ziana returned to London so that Ziana could attend school. They had no choice but to leave Tiffany and Zian in Jamaica because of the home office visa refusal. There's not a day goes by that I don't cry about this, said Tiffany. My husband is my rock and he's holding everything together. The situation is so heartbreaking. How can I explain this to my daughter? She thinks I've abandoned her. I've never been apart from her before. Zion tries to hug his dad on the screen when we do video calls. I just want to get Zion home before his health worsens. Tiffany, her husband, and daughter are all devastated by the home office's refusal to allow the baby to come to the UK. Tiffany is particularly anxious because Zian has a kidney condition and specialist pediatric treatment for this condition is not available in Jamaica. 
The family's MP, Sarah Jones, the MP for Croydon Central said, my constituent and her sick child's treatment by the home office has been utterly unacceptable. After I raised their case, it took the home office nearly four months to even reply after I chased them multiple times. Karen Doyle of Movement for Justice, who is supporting the family, said this case highlights the casual callousness of the home office. Home office sources said the documents they requested were sent in an unreadable format. A spokesperson said, upon further evidence coming to light, we agreed to reconsider this application in May. We are awaiting additional information, and once we receive it, we will consider the application fully. Uh, and just a quick update to the story that just came out today, and this is from the Jamaica Gleaner. Baby Zion was granted safe passage by the British High Commission in New Kingston shortly after the UK Guardian and Gleaner highlighted their plight. So after that article that I just read came out and there was public pressure on the home office, um, baby and mother have been allowed to come back to the UK and they are set to arrive on Thursday, July the 14th. Uh, so that's the end of the world story for this week. Wow, what a story. Well, that's unfortunate that they were stuck for so long. That's crazy, man. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe that's that wild. They're, they're like, the baby has an established life in Jamaica. Yeah. A newborn. Without the parents? Exactly. You, that is disgusting. Yeah. Right. No, that's right. banana. That's bizarre. And like the only thing, and, I'm, and maybe like, did oh, the only thing I can imagine is if there was some miss like they thought it was a teenager or something like that's the only but even then it's like you why would you separate a minor from their parent like there's exactly. no unless it's like all they're already an adult like i just i can't that's in it's unbelievable yeah and i and i'm glad it, i'm glad it got resolved yeah yeah i'm glad especially you know that given that the child had has you know fragile health you know, it was urgent that yeah. he be able to get back to, you know, his country where he could get the treatment he needed for his kidney. But um, this is also the same home office that was considering, I don't know if it fully went through, but we did a story a while ago about um, Shamira Begum, I believe, who was a British citizen, but they were trying to deport people who have never been to other countries before in their life but as soon as they commit some type of a crime they want to be oh, able yeah, to, that. they want to deport them to like the parents country of origin oh my god you know it's like there's a lot of xenophobia and racism also at play wow she is a she's a permanent resident in britain i wasn't mm -hmm. clear on if she is originally from jamaica perhaps or something but Mm -hmm. I find it hard to believe that if this were not a black family or other like mm -hmm. visible minority that they would even think to do that. But they have been deporting full blown UK citizens don't know nothing but the UK have been getting sent, quote unquote, back to Jamaica Crazy. for a while now and just being That's left there. So terrible. Yeah, but I'm at, at least happy that in this case, there was a positive outcome for the baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. and it and you highlighting that public pressure is what helped to get that done is also, I think, really important, too. You know, exactly. 
That's why it's important we do this work. And I'm happy that they were able to leverage their story to a point where it, it made it, you know, they finally were able to get away and get back to their life. That's, you know, that family was disrupted for all the wrong reasons. So, mm-hmm. and go ahead with the good news, girl, because we need it. All righty. So I found this good news story um, in that Future Earth Instagram account I talk about every once in a while. Um, I really like that account. And every Tuesday they do a good news roundup that's specifically about climate change or just the environment. Um, And the story comes from a July 5th article by Rachel Frazen in The Hill titled Court Nixes Trump Era Rules Loosening Endangered Species Protections. The article explains, quote, a federal court on Tuesday reinstated endangered species protections that were loosened under the Trump administration. Judge uh, John Tigar uh, Tigar, uh, an Obama appointee vacated the rules in question under the Trump rules. The fish and wildlife service no longer provided the same protections to species that are considered threatened. Those that are likely to become endangered as they do for species that are endangered. The rules also would have allowed for the consideration of economic impacts and deciding whether to protect a species. Conservationists uh, additionally raised concerns that the rules could limit the consideration of climate change. The Trump administration's changes faced significant resistance from environmentalists who brought the lawsuit. The whole point of the Endangered Species Act is to give protections to species that are on the brink of extinction, Kristen Boyles, an attorney at Earth Justice, told The Hill. The Trump rules that have today been repealed did nothing to help species and, in fact, did affirmative harm to how species are protected in this country, Boyles added. By the court ruling today, we go back to the regulatory interpretation that has been in place for over 40 years. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. Just a nice little, uh, story, just a reminder that things can change and then change back again. And, uh, hopefully they keep moving in a positive direction. It's a little up and down sometimes, but yeah, save the animals. That's great. Biodiversity is very important and saving the animals and keeping earth as best as possible should be number one on our agenda. All right, guys. So we have made it to the end of this week's objection to the rule. We just want to give a special thanks to our listeners, those of you who interact with our social media, uh, people who are leveraging these conversations among their friends and communities. Um, It is a privilege to speak to you each week about things that we feel are important And we do this because we want the world to know more and be a part of solutions as much as possible. Ladies, you have anything you want to add to that? You put it perfectly, I think. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's one of the highlights of my week is recording with you all and it really, you know, pushing ourselves and hopefully challenging our listeners to also be curious about what's going on in the world around you be an active participant in it and not just a bystander because mm-hmm. we need that more than ever but you know the mm-hmm. first step is being knowledgeable and aware mm-hmm. yeah and I like I like that we often talk about stories that aren't like the top of the headline front page stories because I think that as much as we live in a world that's saturated with like constant barrage of news, I feel like it is always about the same stories day after day. Um, so just a reminder that, you know, things that keep happening bad and good, um, beyond those stories, not that they're not important, but that, you know, um, 
there's a lot going on every day beyond those things. Yeah, because me, you, and Reese, we're not an algorithm. We're real people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> not like some computer program telling you what to pay attention to, but like we put yeah. a lot of thought into what we decide to talk about and how we decide to present it. So yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you. All right, guys. And if you'd like to listen to any of our older episodes, you can check out our show page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on Spotify. Keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. The final track of the day is Back to Life by the Sunday Service Choir. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye, Bye. everybody.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Attention, quick 